the Advent season or series for us as a church. And so, um, this series that we're going to be going through the next five weeks is a series that we're, we're calling Christ Our King, Songs of Truth. And it's a series where we're going to be looking at some, some different Christmas songs, some that are Christmas hymns, some that are, are praise songs, or one that's specifically a praise song. Most of them are, are well known to you. This one may be for some of you new, for some others you may have sung it many times. But of each of the songs that we're doing, it's probably the least familiar, and it is the oldest of the songs that we're going to be doing and looking at. But my hope is not to confuse the song with the scripture. And so our goal throughout this series is not to preach the song, but is to preach the scripture. The song is merely a declaration of the truth of scripture. And so our focus this morning is going to be looking at the, the foundation, the biblical foundation to these different Christmas songs that we so often sing. And I hope that as we go through this over the course of the next few weeks, that the songs will have greater meaning for you as you sing them. My hope is that some of the songs, there will be understanding that's drawn out of them as we look at Scripture that may be different than the words that we use. In fact, one of the songs that we'll be looking at, there's going to be a several different words that in our culture today, we've kind of redefined those words, and the song has a very different meaning than often we sing it with. And the truth is, is that as we worship, that worship songs serve a number of purposes. One is for teaching as we corporately sing them together, God teaches our hearts. Another is as we sing them together is a declaration of praise. And still others are a prayer. The song that we're looking at this morning both declares God's truth and is a prayer of his people. Come thou long expected Jesus. And at the heart of this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was written by Charles Wesley in 1744. Now, it wasn't probably done in the rendition that we just sang it. Truth be told, they probably didn't have drums accompanying it. They didn't have guitars accompanying it and playing it, right? But many of those old hymns that we sing, as much as we don't always remember it, were actually placed in its day to contemporary music. Much of the old hymns that we sing were actually bar tunes. The music, the song, the style was actually played in bars, and Christian words were put to those songs. Songs are always being contemporized in terms of their sound to bring into the area or the arena where people, because the issue is the truth does not change, right? The truth does not change. And so this song was published by Charles Wesley in 1744 in a little book called The Hymns for the Nativity of Our Lord. It's a little tiny song book that he had put together and ironically, in his life, it became the most popular Christian songbook. In his life, it was reprinted 20 times in his lifespan. And so these songs were, were popular. In fact, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was the equivalent 
of kind of a silent night. And what do I mean by that? Well, silent night is the song that is often sung on Christmas Eve. In fact, it's the song we use for candlelight services and we we stand around and we sing that song together. It is the traditional song that is often sung on Christmas Eve. Well, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus is the traditional song for the first Sunday of Advent. It's the most popular song sung on the first Sunday of Advent. Why? Because the entire season is about this longing for the expected Messiah who is no longer an unknown Messiah, but is a known Messiah in Jesus. And so, as we look at this song this morning, the song just becomes the platform for the scriptural truth that we're going to be learning and that God's going to be speaking to and that we're going to be proclaiming together. See, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7 speaks to this truth, and it is the foundation for the song. You see, this song declares the truth of what is so clearly revealed in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. And that truth is that Jesus is the promised King, the Messiah given by our gracious God. And so with that, God's prophecy for a Savior King is fulfilled in Jesus, bringing salvation to all who believe and empowering us to experience the joyful hope of His promises. At the heart of this passage is the fact that God's prophecy for a Savior King is fulfilled in Jesus, bringing salvation to all who believe and empowering us to experience the joyful hope of His promises. What is it? Jesus is the fulfilled promise. What we're really talking about today is fulfilled promises. That God is a God who keeps his word. And because he keeps his word, his word can be trusted. And so verse 1 in Isaiah 9 starts this way. It says, but there will be no gloom for who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, the key word in this passage is gloom. And in Greek, the word is muop. It means dimness. It, it carries this idea of, of a lack of hope, of darkness. There's no life. And this gloom is in the face of anguish. And so what you have is this this idea of grieving over this, this sense that, that God is, is, is distant and far. And there's no hope. The Israelites were struggling. See, during this time in 2 Kings 16, 2-3, we're told that Ahaz, who is king, did not want to do what was right and did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. It says that he even went so far as to burn his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. See, King Ahaz had led Israel in the worship of idols, specifically the God of Melech, and he was sacrificing his children at the altar of this God. 
as a result of this and this unrepentant sin of idolatry, God punishes Israel by allowing the Assyrians to conquer the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali in the northern region of Israel. And so Israel comes under Assyrian rule. And so the people are distraught over the rule of Assyria, and they believe that God is far off. See, God has brought us discipline on the nation of Israel. And the people are distant. There's a dimness. There's a lack of hope. There's grieving. Because God seems far away. But the neatest part about this story is that that is just the beginning. The, the beginning is not the end, that God does not leave them in their hopeless condition and tell them that they are hopeless and they are destined for despair and there is no way out. But rather, he does something here. See, verse 1 continues, it says, But in a latter time he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Or another word for nations is that have been among the Gentiles. So here's what he does. God gives the remnant of Israel, those desiring a relationship with them, hope. He promises this coming Messiah. And he says, look, these days, these days that you're looking at right now, well, guess what? There are going to be days that are coming that are going to be glorious. And he desires for the people of Israel to long for this hope. You see, it's unique, isn't it? That the God who disciplines is also the God who redeems. The God who disciplines is also the God who redeems. And in this moment, he brings to his people and he tells them, listen, I know the circumstances of which you are lying, of which to come, of which you will rise, and you will sit under the Assyrian or captive leadership, but know that I am still going to redeem you. I am coming for you. I will send a redeemer, and this redeemer will have a perfect government over you. He's not just talking about nations. He's talking about one who will secure, one who will bring salvation, one who will bring life, one who will bring freedom. This is the Messiah that he's speaking of. And so he tells them that the Messiah is coming who will reveal God's glory and restore their relationship with him. More importantly, Isaiah's prophecy affirms that Jesus is the promised Messiah. See, sometimes we want to look at Scripture and it's easy to go, well, is it super clear when doubt comes in? Is Jesus really the Messiah? Well, the answer is in Isaiah, we see clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but through me, we can believe him. Because he is the Messiah. And so 
in this passage, we're going to see four ways that prophecy is fulfilled through Jesus. The first we have in verse 2, it says this. It says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So Jesus' ministry begins in Galilee, exactly as Isaiah spoke of, and reveals the need for righteousness in people's lives. How does it reveal? Well, Jesus is the light. And in the midst of darkness, he allows us to see the sin which is present in our life. He exposes our, our condition that is leading to death. See, Galilee was in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and it resided on the border of Gentile nations. When Galilee was overthrown by the Assyrians, people from those neighboring Gentile nations began to move into the region. And this caused many Jews to despise the Galilee region. And so for many Jews, it was unthinkable for the Messiah to reside in Galilee. However, by starting his ministry in Galilee... Jesus not only fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, but proclaims that his gospel is available to both Jew and Gentile. That this was a message not simply for the Israelites, but it was a message for all. It was a message that exposed each of our needs for the righteousness of God. Matthew 4, 12 through 17 says this. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, Jesus reveals our needs for repentance. Why is it that our culture and that our world can talk so freely about God, but not about Jesus? Speak of God, and everybody wants to talk about God. They define God in their own ways, right? God has one attribute. We hear it in our culture all the time. That one attribute is love, is it not? We don't speak of God's holiness. We often don't speak of God's wrath. But we make God into our own image. We, we can define God in some universal kind of way. God's whatever positive energy you want him to be. God's some mystical force. But when we're confronted with Jesus, no longer are we able to see God as some mystical force or make him into our own image because we have God incarnate standing directly in front of us. And we are confronted with the truth where he says, I am the way. And we are confronted with the truth where he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. For the kingdom of God is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if I'm not a sinner, why do I need to repent? 
If I'm not a sinner, there is no need for me to repent. And yet, Jesus' command and instruction for all was repent. Which must mean that we all have a sinful condition. And like the Israelites, if that's where we're left, we're going to stay in despair. If the only message is simply repent, we're going to stay in despair. But Jesus said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. You see, Jesus exposes the darkness of our hearts. This Savior came and he took these people who were walking in darkness and he shined the light upon them. And those people who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light of Jesus came. There is not one that is too far from the grip of Christ. It does not matter how deep or dark you believe your sin to be. You are not outside the reach of Christ. That first stanza says, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, the same God. Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, not just Israel, but of all nations. Joy of every longing heart. Jesus is that light. Jesus is that light. You see, Jesus' ministry was marked by bringing light into the midst of darkness. His focus was to expose sin and reveal the need for righteousness in our lives. Notice here that Jesus doesn't start by sharing the love of God. He starts with a call for repentance. His desire is to restore us spiritually to God through him. See, if we have no desire to see our sin, and if we have no knowledge that we're sinners, God's love is a minimal love, is it not? It's actually the love of just simply a good friend, of a father who might die for his child. If Kevin were to die for his son, it would be tragic, but because he loves his son, he dies for him, but he cannot bring his son to life. Jesus. He dies for his children and brings them new life. He brings them new life. John 1, 9 through 13 says this, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, Jesus is the only way 
Jesus didn't come to be an add-on to your life to make other things better. He came so that you might have life in him. So do you see your need for Christ's righteousness? This season, are you taking time to reflect on your need for Christ's righteousness? Have you grown cold to seeing yourself as a sinner who was saved by God's grace? Have you grown cold to sin that is slowly creeping up in your life? Have you stopped thanking God and praising God for his working of righteousness in you? This season, may we take that time to reflect on the fact that Jesus is the light and that we too need his light. Even if we've responded to his grace, we need his light exposing the darkness that rides within. See, in Christ, the word tells us that we are a new creation in him. But our flesh battles, does it not? And have we grown cold to that battle? Are we allowing the little wolves to enter our life so that it might rob us of what it really means to live abundantly with him? The second way that the prophecy is fulfilled through Jesus, it says, you've multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy, they rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Jesus brings joy to those that draw near to him. Jesus brings joy to those that draw near to him. Now that may sound kind of interesting. How do you know? Well, you only know if you draw near to God. See, in our lives, so much when we talk about our faith in Christ, we go, well, you have to believe in it before you first do it. Well, there's so much that we do that we believe in first that we first don't know if it's going to work or not, and we step out in faith hoping it does, right? Well, the same is true with all things. When we walk with God, God is calling us to walk in faith. Joy comes when we are drawing near to God. You see, God is the one who initiates the relationship with us. He's the one that draws us to him. And after we respond to Christ, God doesn't say, listen, just go off and do your own thing. He says, continue to draw near to me. James tells us, he instructs us, draw near to him so that he might draw near to you. When we draw near to God, we find joy. The song says here, joy to those who long to see thee, day spring from on high appear. Where does the joy come? It comes when? It comes when we seek the Lord. When we long to see him. When you're left with nothing else but yourself. 
There's a longing for Jesus. And so often in the busyness of our world, in the busyness of our culture, we lose that longing. No longer do we feel as if the only thing and the only one that we need is Jesus. If I just had a little more success in this area, if I just had a little more money, if, if my relationship with my spouse was just a little bit better, life would be better and I'd be happy. Jesus comes and says, listen, your joy is not a part of your circumstances. Your joy is a part of me. And the amazing part is, it, is that when you walk in that, when you come to Jesus and you draw near to him and you find your joy in him, it only affirms the fact that Jesus is the true Messiah. In John 15, 9 through 11, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Where does the fullness of joy come from? It comes from Jesus. Which means that I've got to start by seeking him first. It means that in my flesh right now I may not be desiring him. But if I want real joy I need to start pursuing him. Joy comes from Jesus. Pastor Rob Morgan tells a letter his wife wrote to their daughters. And the truth is that joy comes as a result of Christ's presence in our life. And this is what she wrote to her daughters. She wrote, I'm so bursting with joy today I can hardly stand it. I've had my shower, came out for my breakfast, put my last dryer load in the dryer... And we'll get to my quiet time before the therapist comes. I've had the sweetest fellowship with the Lord and decided if I'm depressed or sad or overcome or discouraged or hateful or self-absorbed, it's part of the devil's lie somewhere in there. He preys upon our emotions and reasonings and has a heyday. So don't believe him today. He's defeated and acting like he isn't. Love, Mom. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verses 19 through 20 continue, and it says, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons, and not to God. I do not want you to be participant with demons. It's a real question that we have to ask. Are we choosing to serve and pursue God, or are we choosing to pursue idols, which is merely a deception by the enemy? In this season, it's so easy to pursue idols, isn't it? I need to have X amount of gifts underneath the tree. Somebody gave a gift at this cost, so I've got to match that cost someplace. It 
or being disappointed with the presence that believing that the present is going to provide the happiness that you so longingly desire. This song reminds us that our joy is not in our circumstances or our things, it is in Jesus. And do we have a longing for Jesus that is greater for our longing than Christmas Day? Do we have a longing for Jesus that is greater for our, than our longing for Christmas Day? I often wonder if Jesus feels like he's invited us to his birthday party and we get there and we ignore him the whole time. It's so easy, isn't it? The subtleties that we have with family and how family can draw us away just in that simple moment. The meal's got to be prepared in a simple way. The presents have to be accounted for. The shuffling from house to house. It's Christ's party. Sometimes we forget that Christ is the center of that party. Christ is the center of the season. Do we long for Jesus more than we long for Christmas Day? The third way that God fulfills his prophecy through Jesus that we see here is that Jesus gives freedom and victory over sin and death. Jesus gives freedom and victory over sin and death. He says here in verses 4 and 5, For the yoke of his burden, the rod of his oppressor, for every boot of the tramping warrior, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What's interesting here is there's three forms of imagery that's used. There's this yoke of burden. There's this boot of tramping. And there's this darkness. And all of them are overcome through the Messiah. See, Jesus gives us freedom and victory over sin. In the second stanza there of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, it says, Joy to those who long to see thee, day spring from on high appear. Come thou promised rod of Jesse, of thy birth we long to hear. O'er the hills, the angels singing, news glad tidings of a birth, Go to him, your praise is ringing. Christ the Lord has come to earth. From our fears, from our fears. In verse 1 and stanza 1, from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. All throughout this song, it's speaking of the freedom and victory that we have in Jesus. Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Who was it that broke the bond of slavery, the yoke of slavery? It was Jesus. See, Jesus will also grant freedom and victory eternally over sin and rebellion when he comes again. Notice what it says here in verse 7. 
It says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom. And before that, it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Jesus is coming to rule eternally. This freedom is eternal. Now, here's the thing. This victory that he's bringing, that's an eternal victory. This victory that he's bringing is complete. Do you sometimes struggle with feeling like a victim of your own sin? Do you feel like you're wondering whether or not God will overcome that victory? And why God doesn't seemingly have taken this away from you? Well, God says his victory is complete. And his victory is complete when it is found in Christ. It means that on those days that I'm struggling, that I am continually going to the well of Christ. That Christ is greater than the sin that so desperately desires to vie for my soul. He gives the Israelites this cool little imagery he says, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Here's what he's saying. Israelites, I want you to remember something. There was this leader named Gideon in Judges 7. And I showed Gideon that all he really needed was me. Gideon started with this massive army and I pared it down and pared it down so it was Gideon and his 300 men. And then it was Gideon and his 100 men. And we utterly destroyed the enemy. The victory was complete. Not because of the size of the army, but because who is God. That's the victory that I've provided. That's the victory that's complete. At Christmas time, in the, the season of Advent, is our focus on the fact that Jesus has actually won? Are we living lives that are marked by his victory, not by defeat? Stanza 3, it says, come to earth to taste our sadness, he whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall, this the everlasting wonder, Christ was born, the Lord of all. Where did he come? He came to a land that was full of those who were in darkness, those who were bound in the yoke of slavery, those who were hurt in battle, those that were experiencing a destitute harvest. He came to those who were in spiritual dimness. That's the God who came. He didn't come to the greatest of these, he came to the least of these, of which we all are the least of these. 
That's the Jesus that we serve. That's the Messiah that's told of in Isaiah 9. The Messiah that came so that we might experience freedom and victory over sin. And then finally, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of God's prophecy here because Jesus is born a child for the salvation of mankind in the line of David. Jesus is born a child for the salvation of mankind in the line of David. Verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. It's a wonderful passage. He tells us this this Messiah will be born of a woman. And then he tells us that actually, it's not simply that this child was born of a woman, but he was actually given to us by God. And it's for our salvation, for our redemption. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says this in verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. This Messiah was going to come as 100% human and 100% God. And this Messiah came so that his people, God's people, might be saved. This phrase, given to us, literally means to be delivered up. His life was to be delivered up for the salvation of the Jews. Romans 4.25 says this about Jesus. It was Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's why he came. And he did just that. That was his purpose, to show that he was the Messiah. Jesus' purpose wasn't to come to be a great teacher. Jesus' purpose wasn't to add to Hare Krishna or to any other religious idea that was out there. He wasn't to be some biblical or moral scholar. Jesus came for the salvation of mankind. Jesus came as the fulfillment of God's promise to bring a redeemer to his people, to pull his people from the dimness and the lack of hope so that they might experience life with him. He was born a child the salvation of mankind it's so easy sometimes to get lost with all the other things that Jesus did and to focus on those things but Jesus came as Mark 10 tells us as a ransom for many he came to give up his life so that we might have life Gail Irwin writes this about God's government it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And I love the way that he puts this. He said, the government, the people that he's ruling, that have submitted to him, look like their king. And it says simply this, politicians of this day look for what they can get from you. 
Jesus looks for what he can do for you. Leaders of this day surround themselves with servants. Jesus surrounds us with his servanthood. Leaders of this day use their power to build their empire. Jesus uses his power to wash our feet and make us clean and comfortable. Leaders of this day trade their influence for money. God so loved that he gave. He goes on and he says, Whenever I see people give up lucrative careers simply to go and share the good news of Jesus, I know they are governed by God. When I see pastors carefully teach and lead the flock God has given them, I know they are getting signals from the great king. When I see people leave family to live and teach in distant lands because they love the people who have not heard, I know they are governed by God. The government that is being spoken of is the government of Christ in which his people are submitted and surrendered to him. Revelation twenty two sixteen says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. What a beautiful, beautiful phrase in that song of come thou long expected Jesus. Joy to those who long to see thee day spring from on high appear. And stanza four, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring, his kingdom, by thy own eternal spirit, rule in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. That's the Jesus that we serve. He is the fulfillment of God's prophecy. He is not only the Messiah mentioned in Isaiah, but he has a name, and the Messiah's name is Jesus. May we long for his presence in this season. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the fulfillment of your word. Thank you that we can trust your word because you have fulfilled your word, and your promise through Christ. God, may we go forward into the season with a longing. And may this song be a declaration and a prayer. May our hearts long for you more than we long for the day of this season. And may it be a longing that extends throughout our lives not just for a single month. And we ask this in your name.